and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we then have we confidence toward God. Samuel Rutherford has aptly noted the conscience is a tender peace and either the best friend or the saddest enemy. That's from his work, Free Disputation of Pretended Liberty of Conscience, page 22. This Lord's Day, we will be considering how this God-given faculty within man relates to the assurance of the believer. Before considering our text, however, we should briefly define and describe the conscience in both its use and its limitations. And so I would make these particular observations concerning the conscience, first of all. The conscience is a God-given faculty in man that either accuses or excuses his thoughts, words, and actions. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul notes concerning even the Gentiles who do not have the law of God. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The conscience is that which bears witness in the mind of man and either accuses or excuses his thoughts, his words, and his behavior. The conscience acts like an internal umpire, if you will either calling us safe or out. Or the conscience is similar to a referee that blows his whistle in our innermost being when either we score or we foul. Or yet again, the conscience resembles a witness in a court that testifies to our innocence or our guilt. A second observation concerning the conscience, is this. The conscience, however, is not the supreme judge as to the morality or immorality of our actions. The supreme judge is God Himself, who has revealed His moral will in part to all men in creation. We call it the law of nature. That's found in Romans chapter 1, where God says that He has revealed in the very creation and testifies to every man concerning himself so that all men are without excuse. 
And he has also revealed his moral will in whole to men in biblical revelation. The third observation is this. Before the fall of man into sin, the conscience of Adam was always a faithful witness because it was not polluted by sin or error. However, subsequent to the fall, the conscience of man having become corrupted by sin and error, it was only as faithful as was the standard or the rule by which it was judging. Insofar as it judged according to God's moral law, it was a faithful witness. But insofar as because of sin and because of error, it departed from the moral law of God, the conscience became an unfaithful witness. In other words, the conscience, dear ones, is not an independent judge. It is an inferior judge to God who alone is the Lord of the conscience, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section 2. And fourthly, the fourth observation Nevertheless, because the conscience of man is God's internal witness, it should not be lightly excused when it speaks. We shouldn't just dismiss the conscience when it speaks because it's possible that the conscience could be unfaithful. It shouldn't be the first thing that comes to our mind to automatically dismiss what our conscience says to us. If our conscience should condemn our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, our words or behavior, we should listen closely and take heed until it can be shown from God's word that the conscience has in fact usurped the place of God in his holy scripture. In other words, this blessed Yes, this blessed internal judge should not be treated shamefully as if it was a deaf and mute witness that had nothing to say to us that we could simply ignore. Thus, there are two simple extremes to which man can swing in his use of the conscience. Two extremes that we must entirely avoid in this whole consideration of the conscience. First of all, man can make his conscience an infallible pope in his life so that whatever the conscience accuses or excuses him of is unquestionably true, unalterably true, infallibly true. This fallacy, dear ones, is evident in the world by those who teach that there is no other standard for a person than what that person believes to be right or wrong. So that it might be right for one person to engage in adultery, stealing or lying, and that it might be 
wrong for another person to engage in these same acts under the identically same circumstances, depending upon whether that person believes it was right or wrong. You see, this is the quote, unquote, this is the conscience is king view, which is stated well by that eminent philosopher, Gemini Cricket, who taught, and always let your conscience be your guide. However, such a wicked view of the conscience may also be assumed not only by non-Christians, it can be assumed by professing Christians who proclaim all men have an inherent right to believe and practice what they believe to be true, even if it is contrary to the doctrine, worship, or government found in Scripture. However, dear ones, such is not a true liberty of conscience, for we have no more liberty to sin against God than we have to sin against our neighbor. We have no more liberty to worship God in a way that He is not authorized in His Word than we have to steal from our neighbor. In other words, we never have the liberty, dear ones, to sin by breaking any of God's commandments, whether it's the first four commandments or whether it's the last six commandments. And one of the key watchwords you'll note and observe in this false view of conscience, where the conscience is an infallible pope or king, is the word sincerity. But he is so sincere in what he believes, or she believes it to be true with all of her heart. However, dear ones, I would remind you that those Israelites who offered their children as a burnt offering to Molech also did so because they were sincere. How much more sincere can you become than to offer your children thinking that you're doing some kind of spiritual service of worship to offer your children as a sacrifice to a God? Dear one, sincerity in the truth is indeed commendable. However, sincerity in error is deplorable. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. teaches us there is a way which seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death again we note in Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15 it says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes he believes it to be right, the Word of God says. This is how a fool thinks. But he that hearkeneth unto counsel, 
biblical counsel, godly counsel, the truth is wise. One other passage here in Proverbs, Proverbs 16:2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. And so that's the first extreme, sinful extreme, to which man can swing as we look at this issue of the conscience, that the conscience is an infallible pope. The other sinful extreme is this. Man can become seared in conscience by ignoring his conscience and never listening to it so that it becomes callous to the truth and silently approves of the most depraved thoughts words and actions within man. It can become calloused and seared because it's completely neglected and ignored time and time and time again. And then delusion and deception overwhelm a man. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, We find these words. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart, that is their conscience, was darkened. In verse 24, because their foolish heart became darkened or calloused. Notice what God does to such men. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up. He gave them up to uncleanness. The same thing is said in verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. In verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. You see, in 1 Timothy 4.2, the word of the Lord is clear. Beginning with verse 1, 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. How did they get to that place? How did they get to the place where they had a conscience that was seared, that was calloused? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God, in verse 11, sends upon certain ones, it says, a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And why? Verse 12, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They continued to ignore the conscience. 
as it accused them of their sin and error. They kept bearing it and bearing it. Neglecting. Not listening to it. Until it was darkened. And they believed a lie. How this, dear ones, should smite our conscience now. That we not ignore our conscience. That we neither consider it to be an infallible pope, but not, but to the other extreme, that we not ignore and neglect it. And what it says. And here, I believe, is where much of the counseling of today, both outside and inside the professing church, tragically errs. For example, if a woman comes to a counselor with a guilty conscience over having been unfaithful to her husband, she may be told to simply ignore the guilt because it's simply based upon an antiquated outdated system of ethics that were imposed upon her as a child. The band-aid approach. How do you deal with guilt? Ignore it. Neglect it. This is what you hear so often in professing Christian churches as well. People are simply wanting to get rid of the guilt. And so many ministers and counselors are all too quick and free to get rid of it by simply ignoring it. However, what she should be told, that same woman, what she should be told is that she has become an adulterer, an adulteress. She has violated her marriage vows. She has sinned against God and her husband. But that God in His rich mercy toward us in Jesus Christ even forgives such sins as these. As the Apostle Paul attests when he says that he is the chief of sinners, but God had mercy upon him. As Jesus demonstrated to the woman who was caught in adultery, and said, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Why? Because she had repented of her sin and the Lord forgave her of that sin. You know, similarly, dear ones, we might be tempted to dismiss a conscience we, to be, we believe to be or might classify as overly sensitive. However, to do so, to simply dismiss it, to simply ignore it or to counsel someone else simply to ignore his conscience is equivalent to dismissing a pain that is generating from the heart. If we simply ignore our pangs of conscience, it may as likely spell destruction to the soul as to ignore those pains emanating from the heart, which might spell destruction to the body. 
Well, having considered then the nature, the function, the limitations of the conscience, let us now move on to our text in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. My first main point, I'd like to give you some background information. been a while since we were in this epistle of 1 John, so I think it would be important to simply bring to our recollection some information about this epistle. First of all, remember that the Apostle John is addressing Christians in various churches of Asia by means of a circular letter. Christians who had been exposed to the false teachings of Gnosticism. Secondly, Gnosticism, what was it? Gnosticism corrupted the truth of God's Word by betraying the historical and infallible standard of God's Word. And they exchanged the infallible standard of God's Word for a subjective and fallible standard of mere human experience guided by a mystical knowledge of God. Thus, Gnosticism taught that all that was of a material substance was evil, and that which is of a spiritual substance was good. Such a doctrine, in fact, condemned the divine creation of all things, for God created not only spirit, but created that which was of matter, that which was physical. And at the end of creation, having created all these things, God declared that it was good. And by that particular error, that particular false teaching, not only did they condemn and deny the doctrine of creation, but they also had to deny the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ who being God became man and took upon himself a real human body. They offered in exchange that Christ either assumed a phantom body, it looked real, but it was not truly human, or that the Christ came upon Christ, upon the man Jesus, the Christ, the Logos, came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and left him before his death so that he died a mere man. And so the atonement is also denied. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is as well denied in Gnosticism. Furthermore, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is denied. Why would, why would the Lord Jesus take to himself a real body? This is what we want to escape from, not that which we want to enjoy. They denied that, which obviously denies the future bodily resurrection of all believers as well. It denied as well the sanctification of the whole man, body and soul. In fact, amongst Gnostics, they went to one extreme or the other, They went to a kind of asceticism where they beat and flagellated the body into submission. Or they lived an antinomian life 
and completely ignored any kind of restriction, any kind of law or rule with regard to the body and just flagrantly indulged the body because it didn't matter. The body was nothing. And certainly, Gnostics had to deny the final judgment of all men's works. For the final judgment speaks to that which is done in the body. And so you see how important this doctrine in doctrine is that God created all things, both that which is of a spiritual nature and that which is of a material nature, and how everything else that we've mentioned flows from that particular doctrine. They were very consistent with all of these views. Starting from that presupposition, they were very consistent. But where they got off track was in believing that God gave them some kind of special revelation, some kind of mystical experience and knowledge that was contrary to the written revelation, the historical revelation of God. Thirdly, as to background information, John writes this small letter to give these struggling Christians some objective standard by which they might know that they are of the truth. You see, the Gnostic false teachers had their own subjective tests of various spiritual experiences in which they had received a special knowledge from God. They based their assurance, you might say, that they were of the truth upon these mystical experiences, much like Pentecostals and Charismatics of, the, of, of today, who look to speaking in tongues or some vision as the test by which they know that they are of the truth. You know, the phrase or phrases similar to this, that ye might know or we know that, these are occurring phrases throughout this epistle of 1 John. Again and again, they occur. Just a few examples of these particular phrases. The very reason for this epistle being written in the very first place, stated at the end of this epistle, 1 John 5.13, says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know. Again, consider with me just a brief sampling of these kinds of phrases. In 1 John 2, 3, And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. 1 John 3, 14, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 4.13 Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. 1 John 5.2 By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We know. 
This is not a book that is declaring some kind of uncertainty or doubt, possibilities or even probabilities. This is a book which is communicating to each and every child of God that there is knowledge that is certain, knowledge that they can be confident in. And John writes to assure these Christians concerning things that they can know for a certainty. That they can know that they are of the truth. These tests which God gives us in this epistle are indeed the appointed means, in part, whereby we know with an infallible assurance that we belong to Christ and have eternal life. Dear ones, we will flounder in perpetual doubt or a false hope if we do not seriously consider these tests upon which John elaborates in this letter. First of all, the test of obedience. I would ask this question concerning this test. Do you strive by God's grace to be obedient to the commandments of God? This is not a sinless perfection that we're speaking of in regard to obedience nor in regard to any of these tests. But do you strive by God's grace to be obedient to His commandments? Secondly, the test of love. I would ask, do you love the brethren and by God's grace demonstrate that to be the case through your prayers? through your acts of mercy, through your encouragement, through your loving correction. The test of love. And thirdly, the test of orthodoxy. Do you love the truth as revealed by God in Scripture? And do you strive by God's grace to know and practice the truth in all areas of faith and life? One last observation under this this first point of background information before we specifically look at our text today. Although these tests are evidences of the work of grace upon which our assurance of salvation is founded, always remember that they are not themselves the ground of our salvation. They may be evidences of the assurance of our salvation, but they are not the ground of our salvation. Do not confuse the two. The ground of our salvation, dear ones, is and only can be the glorious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. To that alone we repair as our only hope of eternal salvation. And that perfect righteousness, dear ones, is received by faith alone when you believe in the promise of the gospel. The ground of salvation and the ground of assurance do indeed differ. The ground of salvation, again, being the righteousness of Christ who fulfilled all righteousness for us in His life, 
his death, his resurrection. And the ground of assurance being the divine truth of the promises, and I quote here, the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. These are the grounds of our assurance of salvation as summarized for us in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, section 2. Thus, a genuine Christian, dear ones, may temporarily lose the joy or the testimony of the assurance of salvation due to his unfaithfulness to Christ in doctrine or his unfaithfulness to Christ in life, but he can never, ever lose the ground of his salvation, namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For it is a free gift received by faith and not by works of righteousness on our part. And so let us now closely consider our text. We begin with the second major point today, the promise of assurance in chapter 3, verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. This verse is actually a link from what was just stated previously and what follows subsequently. You see, in the previous section, John has noted that love for the brethren is an evidence of God's work of grace in the life of a Christian. 1 John 3.14 where he says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now, John does not leave this love for the brethren in some kind of vague, ambiguous state so that you wouldn't understand or know what this love for the brethren is. But rather, he describes very carefully what this love for the brethren is. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, when he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's what love for the brethren looks like. That's how John describes it. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's not a love that is simply pointed inward. It's a love that's pointing outward in ministry and service. In help and aid and assistance. And yes, even in correction. 
Because we love the brethren so much that we are not willing to allow them without a testimony for the truth to simply wander aimlessly into error. So John continues in chapter 3, verse 19, by saying, in effect, now that you understand that such tangible expressions of love for those who are Christians, love for the brethren, evidences you are actually members of the same family, the same family of God, we know that, emphasizing those three words, we know that We are of the truth and have not deceived ourselves that we are of the truth. Contrary to the Gnostics who have deceived themselves that they are of the truth, we know that we are of the truth because of these objective tests, namely the one he's just mentioned. We know that we've passed from life into death because we love the brethren. And because we know that, because we observe that in our lives as a testimony of the work of God's grace in our lives, the Apostle says, we shall assure our hearts before God. Now notice that John, in verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, is not suggesting here that we might know could possibly know that we are Christians, that we might even probably know that we are Christians or of the truth, but rather that we shall know that we are Christians. Literally, where it says in the King James Version, and hereby we know, quite literally, it's in the future tense, which emphasizes a certain confidence rather than some kind of mere wishful desire, we shall know that we are of the truth. You see the emphasis there? We shall know that we might know. Still, considering... Remarks under this second main point, the promise of assurance. I would submit to you, although we should never minimize that assurance of salvation is a work of God's free grace in the life of a Christian, nevertheless, it is received by means of man's active participation. For John declares... And we, the we there is not in the King James Version, but again, it is a a we that is understood in the Greek tense that is used. And we shall assure our hearts before him. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and we shall assure our hearts before him. Now, I would have you note It does not use the passive voice here that our hearts shall be assured by God. What it says is 
we shall assure our own hearts before God. It's in the active voice, not the passive voice. That is quite significant. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, this assurance of salvation. But it is not a work independent from man's participation, his active participation. The emphasis here in what John says quite clearly falls upon man being used by God to stir up and give evidence of his assurance of salvation before God. Much like we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Working out our own salvation with fear and trembling does not minimize the fact that it is God who is working within us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Neither does do we minimize the work of the Holy Spirit in assuring us of our salvation by pointing out that it is we ourselves who stir up the grace of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit drives us, compels us to stir up the grace of God in our lives. Dear ones, the evidences of God's work of grace in your life and in mine do not appear in a vacuum. They do not appear out of nowhere, but they appear when faith faith worketh by love, according to Galatians 5.6. For as James says, faith without works is simply a dead faith. And we could also say, by the same token, that works without faith are a dead orthodoxy. And so you see, this is not an either-or proposition. It is a both-and reality. The Holy Spirit and man's active participation. And so I would ask you, dear ones, today, are you stirring up, are you consciously stirring up the grace of God in your life by means of actively living out what you profess to believe? Or is it a mere profession? Are you crying out to God to give you an earnest desire for the truth? Are you crying out to God to give you a love for the brethren? Are you crying out to God to give you a holy life and obedience to His commandments? Are these desires, I ask you, are these desires that I just mentioned in keeping with the revealed will of God? Absolutely. God calls upon us to cry out to Him for these things 
These are his revealed will in our life and therefore we are to pray according to his revealed will that he would bring these things more and more in evidence within our lives as Christians. And because they are according to the revealed will of God, you can be absolutely assured that if you earnestly, fervently and persistently pour out your heart to your heavenly Father, that he will not give you a stone, that he'll not give you a serpent, that he'll not give you a hard and calloused heart in regard to these tests and truths and evidences of God's grace, that he'll give you a soft heart and he will hear your prayer and he will give in measure more and more the grace as you actively work to stir up the grace in your life. And he will not sanctify you entirely until you finally reach glory. But you can rest assured that he will stir you up to love the truth, to love the brethren, and to love a holy life. And there will be, guarantee it based upon the word of God, there will be evidence of that kind of love for those three things I just mentioned in your life. And you will rejoice to see these gracious evidences of God's work in your life. And you will be able, as you witness and see these evidences of God's grace in your life, and it's not arrogance and it's not pride to acknowledge and to see the evidences of these grace in your life. Because all the glory goes to God. But when you see them, you will be able to stand before God unashamed and know that you know Him. You won't have to wait until you stand before Him in absolute perfection in glory. When you see these evidences of God's work of grace, undeniable work of God's grace in your life, you will be able to stand before Him, rejoicing in His work of mercy and grace in your life. And you will know. Lastly, in the sermon today, I would like to simply talk about the accusing heart. Assurance and the accusing heart. In verse 20, actually, I might note to you that this is a sermon that uh, will continue next Lord's Day. I'm going to run out of time today, and so we'll continue part two next Lord's Day. But let us consider assurance and the accusing heart. Verse 20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. A question naturally arises at this point, having stated that we can know that we are of the truth. What about the accusing conscience? The first phrase that we find in 1 John 3.20, for if our heart condemns us, this first phrase actually assumes 
that such will be the case. It is a conditional sentence. And yet the presupposition, the assumption is that as Christians, we will face the accusing heart and conscience. Now, the word that, though it's translated condemns, in English it's translated by the word condemn, that is not the same Greek word that is used, for example, in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. The word in 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 is katagenosko, the word used in Romans chapter 8 and later on in the chapter, who shall lay a charge against God's elect? Who condemns? That same word is used in Romans 8.1. That's a different word than the word used here in 1 John 3.20. The word used in Romans 8 is katakrino, which has to do with a condemning wrath of God. That's how it's used. Here, this particular word, katagenosko, refers to an accusation that is brought against a man by his conscience. <clears throat> We're going to delve more into this, these verses next Lord's Day. But I do have a few things I want to say about the accusing conscience before we get to those things next Lord's Day. When I have that accusing conscience, does that mean that I am not a Christian? The accusing conscience. The answer to that question, we might answer by saying that as a Christian, no, it does not mean that. However, we would want to note that there is a sense in which a person who has an accusing conscience, and perhaps it might be even better to say a condemning conscience at this particular point, will experience that kind of a guilty conscience, one who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, a conscience that accuses one of being a lawbreaker, may in fact indicate that the reason he does not love the brethren is because he is not a brother himself. There may be a guilty conscience which comes to a professing Christian, one who professes to be a Christian, and he is accused And it may in fact indicate that he is simply a lawbreaker and he needs to repent and entrust his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, does God not smite the conscience of the unregenerate with their sin and transgression of his holy commandments? Is this not in fact how the Spirit of God draws the sinner unto himself by showing that sinner, his desperate need of Christ and utter hopelessness apart from Christ? Listen to the testimony of the Holy Spirit as it's found 
in Romans chapter 7 about the work of the law. And the work of the law obviously being in a man's conscience. The unregenerate man's conscience. Romans 7, 7. The apostle says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I have not known, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. And so we can say certainly that a guilty conscience, an accusing conscience, may in fact indicate to the unregenerate that they are breaking God's commandments and they are breaking them to their own destruction. That they need to repent. And that conscience is testifying to them of their need to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. But what about in the life of one who is a genuine Christian? We might say this, no, a condemning heart does not mean that one who is genuinely a Christian is no longer a child of God. For we are never, listen closely, we are never acceptable to God on the basis of our own works of the law. Our righteousness in this life will always fall short of God's standard. Therefore, those who trust the promise of God to be true. And that promise, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Those who trust the promise of God to be true and who have the fruit of God's work of grace in their lives must never cast themselves back under a covenant of works and never view the, eternal, the gift of eternal life as a wage that they can earn by means of their human effort. We must continually, as those who evidence the grace of God in our lives, we must never cast ourselves back under the covenant of works. We are forever done with it. We are no longer under the condemnation of that law and that covenant of works. We stand approved and accepted in the covenant of grace based upon the righteousness of Christ. I ask another question. If a guilty conscience does not mean that a genuine Christian is no longer a child of God, if that accusing conscience does not mean that he is no longer a child of God, what does? that accusing conscience than me. For example, what do I do when my conscience accuses me of not loving the brethren? That's what Paul or John has been most recently talking about. What 
am I to do when my conscience accuses me of not loving the brethren? And again, let us consider two possibilities in regard to this question. An accusing conscience in the life of a Christian may at times indicate a false guilt. And by that, let me simply state, a false guilt, first of all, is an accusing conscience that comes unto the Christian and which is from the accuser of the brethren. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And he would seek to, to, to shake us from our confidence by tempting us to believe that we yet stand under the condemning wrath of God. That is a form of false guilt that the enemy of our soul can bring. You remember in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Zechariah had a vision. And his vision was of Joshua the high priest. And next to Joshua, the high priest, stood Satan, the accuser of the brethren. It says that he stood there to oppose him, to resist him, to accuse Joshua. In that hallowed place of official ministry before God, on behalf of God's people, he stood to accuse, to condemn this child of God. And in the vision, the Lord says, take from Joshua the high priest, take from him his filthy garments and put with on him clean garments, illustrating for those who would read the prophecy that it is God who purifies, cleanses, and sanctifies. It is God who makes his children worthy. It is not his children who make themselves worthy to stand in his presence. Furthermore, we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and following, when we see these questions asked, who shall lay a charge to God's elect? Who condemns? We see it is God who justifies and declares us righteous. And so we must recognize the false guilt that emanates from the accuser of the brethren, first of all. But there's a second false guilt that I would have you to recognize as well. It is certainly possible with regard to a, an accusing conscience for a Christian to sense a responsibility for people or for circumstances that is clearly unwarranted or unbiblical. In other words, Christians may feel guilty about matters which are clearly outside of their control and which belong entirely in the sovereign hands of God. And in which case, we might say it is not that about which I sense guilt that may be sinful, but more often than not, I may be truly guilty for taking to myself 
areas and responsibilities and duties that belong to God alone. For example, as a father, I may experience guilt over the response of my children to my faithful instruction or loving discipline. I may instruct my children, for example, not to run into the street, not to play in the street. I may not only uh, faithfully instruct, I may lovingly discipline and correct them not to go into the street. But apart from my knowledge, one day they slip into the street and are hit by a car and suffer great injury. And I feel guilty about it. Is that true guilt? Or is that false guilt? See, to say that that is a true guilt is to say that I should be as omniscient as God Himself is. And that I should be able to control every single circumstance that happens to my children. And that furthermore, I am directly responsible for all the decisions and all the acts of disobedience that my children make and perform. Or what if your daughter rebels and runs off to marry a romantic unbeliever because you would not consent to allow her to date this unbeliever, but rather you insisted upon a biblical courtship. And your child rebels against the truth and marries an unbeliever. And you feel guilty about that situation. That's false guilt. Rather, you should feel guilty about feeling guilty. Because you're not God. It is God who is in control of those things and not you. You're responsible to teach, instruct, and to discipline. You're not responsible for the decisions your children make with the truth. And likewise, in proclaiming the truth to friends and family members, when we do not get the response that we hoped for, that we prayed for, do we feel guilty? Do we say to ourselves, if only I knew more, if only I could have answered these objections, that person would have believed the truth? You see, again, that's false guilt. And we should really feel guilty about feeling guilty. Because how people respond to the truth is God's business. Our business is to communicate faithfully, truly, and lovingly the truth. To speak the truth in love. However, there is a legitimate guilt in the life of a Christian. And I believe this particular verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, is not speaking of an illegitimate guilt. And I will give you reasons why I believe so next Lord's Day, but I believe that the guilt 
the accusing conscience that we find in 1 John 3.20 is that of legitimate guilt. But there is a legitimate guilt. For example, in 2 Samuel 24.10, where it speaks of David, a man after God's own heart, having taken upon himself without God's authorization to take a census of his military capability and might to number the people for that purpose. It says, And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. His conscience smote him because of what he had done. Legitimate guilt. He had violated God's revealed will. Dear ones, we may rightly stand accused of not having loved our brethren. We might stand rightly accused of refusing to show mercy unto our brethren. We may be rightly accused by our conscience for cowering in fear to our brethren and not lovingly correcting them when they depart from the way of truth or when we ourselves depart from the way of truth as in the case of Peter when he denied the Lord and he was smote with bitter tears. You see, both David and Peter experienced legitimate guilt and so will we as Christians. And so, in my conclusion... What I would like to ask you as we draw to a close this Lord's Day is this. Is this legitimate guilt in the life of a Christian a blessing or a curse? How do you view a legitimate accusing conscience? What do you think? Is an accusing conscience in the life of a Christian a friend or foe? Perhaps you have never thought of it in this light as possibly being a friend. But we should learn by God's grace not to despise an accusing conscience that reveals to us our sins against God and our sins against our neighbor. But rather we should learn to appreciate the work of God's law, the work of God's Spirit in our own lives. Now granted, such conviction of sin is not comfortable. It can hardly be classified as pleasurable. But dear ones, it is profitable. It is beneficial. In that we are stopped in our tracks and smitten with the knowledge that we have offended our dear brother or sister and our beloved Savior. In fact, we will never know what it is to enjoy a clear conscience before God until we begin to listen more closely to our offended conscience. We will never come to enjoy, listen closely, we will never come to enjoy the assurance of salvation 
until we become broken and contrite before God, confessing to Him our transgressions, repenting of sin before the Lord and before our neighbor, sin that has been made known to us by an accusing conscience. In reality, dear ones, the accusing conscience can become a good and faithful friend when we realize like pain in the body. It is simply testifying that there is a problem that cannot be ignored. There is an offense that must be acknowledged and corrected. And dear ones, when we understand that it is in such people and those who are broken and contrite that God takes great delight, we will be encouraged to flee to him that we might enjoy the blessedness of a clear conscience before the Lord. For such we can enjoy as we repent and as we turn from our sin, as we avail ourselves of the mercy of God Listen very quickly to the testimony of prophets of Scripture to this truth. In Psalm 34:18. and every time you hear this phrase, broken and contrite, realize how did that person get to the place that he was broken and contrite apart from an accusing conscience that showed to him his sin and testify to his transgression of God's law. Psalm 34:18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51:17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God will despise our ignoring and neglecting an accusing conscience. But he will not despise our acting upon an accusing conscience. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth the eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. You want to be revived? You want to experience the joy of the Lord and the assurance of your salvation? The Lord says, don't run from an accusing conscience. Acknowledge and act and appreciate this God-given faculty in your life. Psalm 66, 2. For all those things have mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Do you remember what the Apostle John says in his first epistle? We call God a liar if we deny that we are sinners. How do we know sin but by the law? 
law testifying to our conscience, our conscience bearing witness that we have sinned. But 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can enjoy a clear conscience before God by not running from an accusing conscience, but embracing an accusing conscience and fleeing to the mercy of Christ. You see, this was Paul's goal. This was Paul's goal as stated in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. A conscience free and void of offense. That's what he exercised himself toward. Are you exercising yourself toward that same goal? That dear ones, should be our goal as a Christian to be free of offense toward God and our neighbor. Let us stand in prayer. Our Father, we do come before Thee this day and do cry out to Thee For thy mercy, for Lord, we have many times ignored, neglected, an accusing conscience, which was simply speaking to us concerning thy holy law. And Father, we see in thy word that there is deception and delusion, there is callousness that falls upon people who ignore that accusing conscience. O Father, we pray that Thou would keep us from doing so, but rather we would have the prayer of David that Thou would search us and know our thoughts, that Thou would reveal unto us every wicked and evil way. O Father, we pray that Thou would not leave us in any sense in that arena of an accusing conscience, but Lord, help us to see that it is revealed to us so that we might enjoy the mercy of Christ. Much as pain is revealed to us that we might obtain healing. Oh, Father, we pray that Thou would use even Thy Word today to teach us to be more attentive to what Thou would say to us through Thy Word, through Thy Spirit, as, thy, as our conscience speaks unto us, so that we might assure our hearts before Thee that we are of the truth. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.